today's show. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Nermeen Sheikh, Carla Wills, Tammy Warrenoff, Libby Rainey, Sam Alkoff, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Sharina Nadura, Tamari Astudio, Adriano Contreras, Maria Tarasena, Mike DeFilippo and Miguel Nagera, our engineer. Special thanks to Miriam Barnard, Becca Staley, Julie Crosby, Hugh Grant, David Prude, Vesta Godars, Carl Marxer. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Thanks so much for joining us. Morning, Portland. The time is eight o'clock, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. Coming up next, Sir Jonah Truth. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we continue our six-part series, Conversations in Southern Illinois. It is part of an occasional Sojourner Truth series on bridging the rural-urban divide in the United States. Today, as part two of our Conversations in Southern Illinois series, you will hear from Clint Heisey. He has lived in Southern Illinois for 46 years. He has worked as a logger. 
ran a mechanic shop, worked as a coal power plant worker, and has also been a caregiver. He has also spent time as a single dad. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now we will hear from our Conversations in Southern Illinois series today featuring Clint Heisey, a longtime resident of rural Southern Illinois. In the group discussion, you talked about the sludge um, that was brought in uh, from Chicago, was it? Right. To this area. Yeah. Just, just say a bit about that. What was it? What happened? Well, it was a venture the uh, Forestry Service had taken the contract to... Uh, uh, reclaim strip mine land. There's uh, since mining is set one of the bigger um, in- incomes that people have been able to do down here. Um, what kind of mining? Uh, traditionally, it was strip mine where they take the top soil off, maybe the top forty to fifty feet of soil, and uh, mine a vein of coal. Um, but that leaves a lot of debris, mounds, mountains of uh, clinkers, and uh, of course all the topsoil they remove after they're done. After the vein is finished mining, that's usually just left. Back in the 70s, they began to uh, reclaim that. There was some grant money for the Forestry Service to do a trial uh, Chicago at that time was running out of space for their sewage so they were going back to uh, very old sewage lagoons 40, anywhere from 30, 40, 50 years old and uh, they uh, liquefied the sludge it was dried there my understanding is they would liquefy it pump it on, into tank cars uh and ship uh, a whole train load down here to southern Illinois. That's 350 miles. My job what at that... What was in that sludge? Well, that's, uh, that's questionable. At, uh, you know, when they were... Back then, they didn't uh, differentiate between household septic, industrial waste. Oh, my God. Uh, combination of everything was... was put in these lagoons that that was another reason they wanted to get rid of it pause that for a moment are you comfortable sitting there yeah I know you have pretty, some. Com- pretty comfortable yeah yeah okay. <laughs> I wish I knew some of the some of the specifics on what part of Chicago this was was pumped from but I don't I, my job on this end when the trains came down was to operate the pumps uh, the the sewage was uh, dumped, gravity-fed into lagoons here as the trains came through. And from that point, uh, it was pumped in out to the fields, the uh, the old coal mine land, and tractors uh, dissed it into the ground. 
did some leveling of the ground at that point. Um, what what was the purpose of this though? Why why were they taking the sludge out to the fields? Well, the the ground is basically dead after the the mining. The mining. After uh-huh. the mining, you've got you. Uh, it, it's hard to describe. We need to go out kills there. Kills the soil. It right. kills the soil. Yeah, you've you've turned it all over, and there's all kinds of rocks and debris and clinkers uh, left from the mining action. The uh, other other than that, it just looks like a moonscape. Eventually, some. You know, weeds will always grow in anything. So eventually, there's some growth there, but nothing, nothing productive will ever grow there. So what the sludge did have was this high nitrogen, along with heavy metals and uh, pesticides and chemicals, and but it is high nitrogen, and it was free. And Chicago wanted to get rid of it, and we were a good dumping ground. Southern Illinois. Southern Illinois. So they would pump it out on the fields, dist it in, uh, big tractors, you know, just like a farming operation. And they uh, planted a, an assortment of grasses and crops in that, uh, in that reclaimed land. Over the years, then, they tested the crops and grasses for which ones were, would take up uh, uh, the the pesticides is what they were looking at. The chemicals and the heavy metals. Uh, what do you mean by take it up? Well, some plants will extract that from the soil, and it's in the plant itself. Then you know. I see. So those would be. So the plants help to clean the soil, then, in a way. Well, it's still there. Mm-hmm. They're all the the chemicals and heavy metals are still there. They're just uh, some of them are removed and they're in the plant matter instead of being in the ground. Mm-hmm. the The key there is: uh, can you feed it? Which ones can they then in turn feed to animals? Uh, some grasses that did didn't seem to extract the heavy metals and chemicals like others did. I, my understanding, I, I wasn't in that phase of it. That came years later after the after my part of it. What was your part? Tell us about I that. I operated the, uh, the huge uh, sludge pumps uh, that would pump it out of these lagoons out into the fields. So I was just on the mechanical side. Um that you know that was just one one part of it everybody had a had a job there for uh, for was me was that strenuous that kind of work no it was just mm-hmm. all it was evenings night late night uh, in the day because once the day started then the tractors would start their uh, plowing and disking so this was a night job right it was what a night hours? job i would go in about eight o'clock at night finish up you know somewhere eight hours later depending on what what was necessary you know what how long the train was uh how long it took to dump whether they had any uh, any malfunction you know that, that would have to be fixed you know as a gravity feed out of the out of the train so valve stuck uh you know that would be the most common malfunction doors you know door, you know it, it was cold doors would freeze yeah. I'm just 
checking checking the sound levels here. It would be interesting to go here. back and get the data and find out what uh, that. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. You know, my phase was just that part, and then I went on to another job after that. How long did you do that job? I was sludge pumping six, seven months. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a it was a short term job, just a temporary job. Mm -hmm. The forestry interesting that the forestry service had the uh, they were the go between. They had the contract to do that. Looking back on it, that seems kind of odd. Yeah. Um, but now that land is uh, is valuable because it's uh, why? Know, well, it was near the town. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it, visibly it looks it looks nice now. You know, houses are there. Uh, I think originally they just thought that would be agriculture, uh, you know, see if they could raise so cattle. So people are living on top of this land that's contaminated. Yeah. That's why uh, when you raised that question, I had never thought about it again, you know, that that, that, could, uh, that could be affecting people. And the land was a good price. People were able to afford it. Oh, and back then that that land was selling for just the taxes on it. You know, it was it was worthless basically. Nobody wanted it. And now people have, uh, like you said, they've uh, they're making. Uh, it's kind of a suburb. Uh, yeah. pe people uh, people have uh, lakes. They fish. You know, it's. Uh, I don't know what it sells for. Another good question to check keep check into. See what, what is it sells the name for. of the area? It's near the town of Carrier Mills. It's outside of uh, uh, Harrisburg, Illinois. Small town. Mm, right. So that's one of the jobs you you did. You were a younger man then. Hmm. Well, I was You're... just. I was from the city. You know, I. I had no uh, mechanical ability or anything else when I moved here. You know, I was pretty green. Um, after that, I t had what a series of jobs. What kinds of jobs did you do? Uh, one job I uh, had for a while was to log. I was a logger. Um, the land adjacent to me, the man died, and the... Uh, family that inherited it uh, sold, the, sold the timber off of it. He needed help and I needed a job so I learned how to run a chainsaw then. And, and where was this? This was to the east of my property just between here and the highway. It's about a 200 acre plot. Uh, had quite a few beautiful trees. It was uh, as close to virgin timber as we have down here. Uh, at that time. So tell us the name of the area for people who are listening. That would be Hardin County, Illinois. Uh, closest town we have is Herod, uh, which it, now it, they did have a general store and a post office. Now it's just got a post office. <laughs> that tells you how big the town is. Right. 
two or three trees, two and or three. The logging happened in, in that area. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we. I worked for him uh, for seven, eight months. Another, you know, another short-term job. What uh, was he doing with the with the trees with the wood? Uh, the, the wood, the trees would be hauled to uh, uh, a lumber yard, sawmills. Uh, the uh, initial phase is they would uh, they would remove the uh, smaller trees, leaving the the large trees, the straight ones. Uh, he sold those to a veneer company. The large, beautiful white oaks would be turned into veneer for furniture. And those were harvested by a separate company. Mm -hmm. They would they would come in with a uh, specially trained crews to lay down these big trees with the minimal damage. So uh, they were quite valuable back then and still are. Yeah. And, you know, a tall tree that's straight and... Two or two to three foot in diameter, uh, no branches for twenty or thirty feet from the ground. Uh, that gives you a lot of veneer. What what size area was locked? The first plot that I worked on was two hundred acres, and. Uh, he did. He did a pretty uh, as as least destructive as possible removal. I'll, I'll say that for his. And I learned how to uh, drive a log skidder, which is uh, the the machine that drags the logs out of the woods. You you can mm -hmm. drag uh, basically you can drag three huge trees with this. It gives you some idea of what kind of a machine it is. Mm -hmm. It'd have a winch on the back, uh, cables where you attach it to the tree. So you're going to do some destruction pulling trees out of the woods, but you can minimize that uh, by taking different pathways each time so you you don't leave the same erodible ruts. You uh, When you're falling trees, you know, you get better and better at doing that so you don't damage other trees that that are will will take their place you know you there there's a way to log um, uh, conservatively and and not not completely destroy woods it still does quite a bit of destruction even at best and he did this job for how long again I think I was with him for seven months I uh I ended up getting hurt on the job. That was the end of that job. How did you get hurt? What kind of it, and what type of injury did you get? Um, we were logging a plot. Uh, it was also another pretty large plot. He was. Uh, it was about a quarter mile. It's about three eighths of a mile across. Some several hundred acres again, and. Uh, it was a rougher area than than I had started with him on. It was hilly. It had uh, it had a lot of uh, well, you, we talked about uh, the poisonous snakes down here. It had a lot of copperheads and rattlesnakes there. Rougher ground. Uh, 
in fact, we took the, uh, to tell you how we did it, uh, we would take the exhaust off the log skidder and turn it down to the ground so that as we drove over it, the uh, vibration from and noise from the exhaust would, it would tend uh, to run the snakes off. So we, you know, we were a little, we wouldn't have to deal with so many of them. Mm. Uh, one day I was uh, cutting trees on an incline and uh, I had gotten better at that point. You know, I, again, if you if you never have done that kind of work, uh, uh, you don't. Uh, it's pretty dangerous work. Uh, I was lucky. I had been lucky quite a few times, but this time I had cut a large tree. Um, I was using a. I don't know if your audience is familiar with steel chainsaws. It was a, a steel 051 with a 32 inch bar. Uh, so I was coming, I had to pretty well come from both sides of this tree to cut it. So that's 60 some odd inches in diameter that, to give you an idea what kind of tree I was. Mm. And uh, in this case, it looked like a really uh, good drop because I was on the incline and you, you know, that, that helps you. You know where it's going to go. You, it's not going to fall uphill, you <laughs> right. think. But uh, as that was falling, something happened so quick I didn't even react to it. I, I think back now. Uh, and the next thing I knew, the tree was, uh, fall, it was across my foot. My left foot was pinned to the ground. Oh. Uh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand how it happened at the time. Later on, they, uh, obviously I survived and... I still have my foot, but uh, but what happened to the foot? What what kind of injury did you get? Well, the problem was uh, it was a while before they came and uh, get the tree off of it. So um, uh, the first my first it's reaction, painful. yeah, this you know this tree was five to ten tons. I don't know what it weighed. Uh, of course, on your foot, on my foot. I tried to dig it out, uh, but it, it turned out there was a rock underneath my foot, and this was uh, falling across it. And uh, I got my chainsaw, was going to cut the, it was the butt of the tree, tried to cut it off, uh, but it had been damaged during the accident. It, it wouldn't run. So my only option... there? Well, this the, the way the way this job was situated is I was cutting on one ed, end of the property and there was another sawyer, another guy logging on the other side. And my boss would drive the skidder to drag, he would drag trees from me for a while. Then he would mm -hmm. go over and drag trees that the other guy was cutting. He'd drag it back to the truck. So you were on your own. So I was on one side of the property and uh, he, he was, I could hear him running their machines on the other end like I said it was about three-eighths of a mile so I started yelling and um, praying and knew um, I knew approximately how long it took him for the trip from the other guy to the to the truck it took about five minutes you know the trip so I could, I could, uh, and when he was 
when he was running that skitter, you know, I couldn't, I knew he wouldn't be able to hear me because the exhaust, like I said, was, uh, it was like running a car with an open exhaust only with a huge diesel motor instead of a little gas motor. So I would wait until he got to the truck, I'd yell, and then when he would uh, take the trip back, uh, he made two trips, so I'm judging 20 minutes, and uh, he was, I, could, I knew he was hooking up on the, uh, on the third trip, uh, so I was yelling, and I heard the, I heard the exhaust, heard him rev up the motor, so I thought, well, there's one more trip he's going to make before I can have a chance for him to hear me, and um, then I heard the exhaust, uh, I heard him let it off the throttle, and uh, shortly after that, they came running. They, they had heard me yell over that. I couldn't talk for days after that because I just yelled my voice out. So they came and they finished cutting the butt of the tree out off of my foot. And uh, uh, the only fortunate thing was I was wearing tennis shoes. Had I been wearing steel toe boots, which OSHA would have required <laughs> normally, um, it would have it would have just crushed the the the, the metal toe would have been just crushed. But my foot kind of squashed out. It kind of just flattened. It's, it's the way I, uh, my understanding is. So I got me to the hospital, and uh, they shot me full of painkillers. And uh, is anything broken? Or was I had to ha I had some bones removed. It was it's numb. I don't have a whole lot of feeling in certain parts of that foot, but I still walk on it. Uh, uh, I'm, you know, it. They remove bones. Yeah, the, there was some. The toes were crushed. Uh, but it's amazing the the fact the way that they said if I hadn't been in such good shape I was a I was a physical kind of a fanatic then you know I was I would saw trees all day and then take a run it was a uh, that fact I think in God um, he was uh, he was kind of telling me something <laughs> here's a lesson boy you know here. Um, so that uh, that eventually uh, healed. A couple of weeks in the hospital, an operation, and uh, then some more recovery. Were your medical costs covered? It was. Yeah, it was covered mm -hmm. by that. And um, there was uh, at that point. Uh, I, that's when I went back to school and started uh, getting a started my uh, uh, degree. And uh, why? Why did you make that decision? Did you Did you feel that getting the degree would you would have more options in terms of the kind of work you were doing? Because the two jobs you described were sort of the sludge, and this one were short, shorter term jobs, right? Oh, there was a job in there where I worked on an oil rig. That was another another job that I had. Where was here. that? That was uh, near Carmi, which is uh, to the northeast of us. That was uh, in Illinois. Yes, yeah. Well, we actually worked. Uh, the rig moved around quite a bit. Uh, uh, a drilling uh, might be uh, a two-week job in one location. You know, move the rig, take a day or two to move the rig, drill another hole, and we did do some drilling in Kentucky also. 
these were the uh, the older style rotary rigs where uh, maybe a 3,000 foot hole compare that to now when there's uh, you know 12,000 foot holes are drilled you know deep wells and then you've got the horizontal drilling uh, it's a whole nother technology than what we were it was it was pretty simple uh, was it a, a small company that you worked for or a large it, it was a small company I think there mm -hmm. was probably uh, three four drilling rigs that they owned and it would be and uh, it was another learning experience for me. You know, again, you got to remember, I was uh, uh, a middle-class kid who grew up in the city, had no mechanic training. Uh, I had no um, familiarity with chainsaws or how to fix motors or anything. Mm -hmm. So in what... So, in what way did you find it a learning experience? Well, uh, of course, I was dealing with a different type of person down here. I, I learned to really uh, appreciate the people. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people may have thought uh, they they couldn't get along. I was a long hair. I was a what you'd call a hippie back then. Uh, I had dropped out of college after a year. Uh, Why? Um, mm, I wanted to travel. I wanted to uh, see the world, uh, get some experience. Traveled in Mexico. My, I was a language major. I was trying to... Uh, I learned to speak Spanish uh, pretty fluently down in Mexico. Uh, so this was uh, a brand new experience when I moved down to this area. I still had long hair, and I was working with, uh, uh, people would call them rednecks. And, uh, uh, and uh, so that, that job on the drilling rig, they actually call people that work on the drilling rig roughnecks. 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 That's the that's the term for the job on a on a drilling rig. Roughnecks. But they were uh, they knew. I, I mean, as long as you worked, they didn't care what you look like. You know, and I learned to uh, uh, work on motors at that job. It was always uh, you know there was gas pumps that needed to be worked on. Uh, uh, it was a dangerous another dangerous job. You know, there's a lot of injuries. Most of the guys that I work with are missing uh, toes, fingers. Uh, that was the... <laughs> the funny thing about that job is that's when I cut my hair. I had, uh, when I noticed it... And, and there, there was always somebody on that crew that was drunk every night. It was another... Eve I had the evening shift. Um... Uh, so out of four guys, one one guy would a lot of times would be drunk, maybe a couple of them, and accidents happen. So I uh, had uh, I did have some nightmares about my hair getting caught in the cables because uh, you're dealing with chains and cables, ducking under them. Uh, so cut my hair. <laughs> 
This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a station break. When we return, we will continue with our Conversations in Southern Illinois series, talking with Mr. Clint Heisey. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Check us out on our website on SoTrueRadio.org. If you're on Facebook, you can look for us and like us on Facebook. And we're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. By the way, on Twitter and Instagram, you could find our handle at SoTrueRadio. And today for our SoundCloud listeners, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in St. Louis, Missouri. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Belgium. We now turn our attention back to our conversations in Southern Illinois series, today featuring longtime Southern Illinois resident Clint Heisey. A lot of people may not realize um, who haven't done this kind of work is that in doing either the, the logging work or, or working on the oil rig, there's a way in which your body itself is on the line, isn't it? I mean, there's a risk involved in it, as you were saying. Guys were missing limbs. You you had your foot crushed. So All it's just jobs. dangerous work. So All your body jobs. is really on the line. You're trading. To do this, you're trading in a way. You're trading your body, your body for money trading your body for money you know the i have never been a coal miner i've been in coal mines where i was working on machinery and i didn't like being underground Mm -hmm. so you have to put yourself in their position they are directly selling their health to support their family selling their health to support their family that's quite a statement there and um, so you cut your hair to, to avoid that, um, to avoid another type of accident. Yeah, yeah. Tell us before you dropped out of school and you had the job on the, the logging and the oil rig job happened after you dropped out of school. Yeah, that was right. several years later after I moved down to Southern Illinois. Right. Yeah. But what about this period that you were traveling? How long were you traveling? And how did you survive when you were? Mm, I would work. I mean, how did you get an income? <clears throat> mm-hmm. I'd work for a while, save my money. Uh, usually, what kind of work? Well, uh, there need to be, you know, laying pipe, digging ditches, uh, digging trenches, uh, cleaning tank batteries. That's the tanks that catch the uh, uh, the oil where the oil is uh, held until it's uh, picked up by a tanker 
they need to be uh, painted every so often. I, it was and a good was job. This? Uh, we're close by in the mm-hmm. in the in the uh, 30, 40, 50 mile range from okay. where we are now. Mm-hmm. This was a Celine Basin was a uh, a big oil producer uh, from the 30s and 40s on. Uh, it only uh, a lot of the fields have played out by now, so it does, it's not a big producer. There's still oil that comes out of it, this area. So that was a. Uh, these are the kind of jobs that uh, unskilled worker can do. Uh, yeah, the, I I got that. But you wanted to travel, and that's about forty fifty miles. No. Where else did you travel? Well, in terms of I, I would I would work on these jobs around here. I would, uh-huh. and then I would go to uh, Mexico. Uh, so you work on these jobs, make some money, right? Save, save the money, and then you would take off take in the off. winter. Usually in the winter, I took off in the winter. In the winter, yeah. And you would live on what you had saved. Had saved, right? So you didn't have to find work then when you were in you were in Mexico. You were also in Colombia. Well, if I had the opportunity to stretch that little bankroll, we're not talking about a whole lot of money. You know, mm-hmm. five, six hundred, maybe a thousand dollars. I would work uh, uh, different places. In Florida, I worked for a, uh, he was a commercial uh, sculptor. Mm-hmm. He would he would do uh, sculptures outside of businesses. Mm-hmm. So I would, I helped him. Uh, he was working in a lot of, in concrete. And uh, uh, the, uh, the raised beds that you saw out here, mm-hmm. basically he would make big uh, relief Sculptures in the same manner that I make made those. He would have forms, uh, and then he pour the concrete in there and release, release them from the forms. That was a. And these maybe, are raised beds where you're growing vegetables. Right now, right? right. Okay. So that's the, just so an example. Some of the skill that you learned working with this guy helped you in right. terms of uh, down creating, the road. Yeah. All along the way, the, the mm-hmm. skills that I learned, I, I'm, I'm using now. Right. Did you did you have any jobs that were not in the U.S. that were that you did while you were in another country, or not really? I uh, I taught uh, I taught English in Mexico. I had uh, I had some jobs down there that helped me. Uh, um, I would trade room and board for English lessons. Uh, that was in uh, I was living in Oaxaca then and uh, I had an opportunity to teach in Mexico City but it was just too dirty back then I just I it was uh, pollution wise yeah it was mm-hmm. it was uh, hard to breathe for me I was used to good clean air and that I didn't want to stay there very long um, let's see I didn't ever do any that was the only job I had in Mexico. Uh, I worked in when I was in California. I told you about uh, working for the. Uh, well, tell us tell us about that because you worked as a caregiver at some point. Oh, that well, yeah, that and that started in Mexico. Uh, uh-huh. There was a American family that lived down there. Um, he was uh, he in had been in, in Oaxaca. In Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had been stricken with ALS. He had been a math professor at a 
University in California. Uh, came down with ALS in his 40s. Mm. His wife was an archaeologist. So uh, uh, living was uh, was a lot less expensive in Mexico. They could afford to uh, live off their savings and then what she made, hire uh, Mexican help. To, uh, so he had... Uh, uh, he had two boys. Uh, they uh, two young boys. Two young boys. They went to school there when they were living there. They would come back to the states uh, about once a year to get their financial uh, done. Uh, so I started working for him when the uh, when his help needed off. Uh, Learned how to care for him at that point, uh, dress him, uh, bathe him, take him to the bathroom, feed him, and um, really the kinds of jobs that one would describe a home care worker right. would do now. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and he was a he's a wonderful man. Uh, had a had a brilliant mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was just a temporary work, uh, a day here, a day there, just to make a little money. Uh, and um, I enjoyed that. But at some point, they, uh, I had run out of money and uh, needed to come back to the States. I had waited a little bit too long. I had very little money left. So I was getting ready to hitchhike back. Um, and it turned out he was coming back. They offered to uh, uh, let me ride with them, and I helped them. And they were bringing their Mexican helper. Uh, he had gotten uh, papers so he could come into the states and stay with them. Right. So uh, when we got to the border, uh, the, something was wrong with his paperwork. They wouldn't let the, the uh, helper in. And they had, uh, he had to be, uh, they put him on a bus to go back home. I guess they couldn't straighten it out. And offered me uh, a job to go with them to California. And as I didn't have any other plans, it seemed like a good opportunity. I had never been to California. I needed the money. I needed to work. So I traveled back with them and uh, got to enjoy the uh, Carmel area. That's where they they rented a house there, and I didn't realize what a what a ritzy place I was staying in until later on. It was, but I appreciated the beauty, and all the time I had off, I was able to uh, go down and just sit and watch the ocean, and uh, that was amazing for me. You know, being from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. But uh, what were the days like? Like what what? In, in terms of the work that you were doing, how many hours a day were you doing caregiving? I was basically with him any time he was up. You know, I would get him up in the morning, uh, dress him. Uh, he could he could do a little bit of feeding of himself, but uh, and and he he wanted to do that as much as he could. His problem was he was uh, getting worse. Yeah, I th- I thought the job was going to be um, just maybe a month or so, but he had gotten into a uh, research um, 
program mm -hmm. at the university there, and um, they were just starting on the biofeedback studies at that time. That was still questionable science in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. They thought it was hokum. But they, they were doing some pretty advanced research, uh, and he got in the program because he was losing uh, circulation in his extremities. They were, he was cold all the time. A lot of my job, uh, one, of the, one of the parts of my job was I gave him uh, massage uh, because he was, uh, his muscles were all, uh, of course they were stiff, he couldn't move his joints. And I would uh, rub his hands and his feet to get the circulation going. So he was enrolled in this program, and they were teaching him how to uh, use his brain to raise the temperature in his uh, in his extremities. You know, by uh, getting in a certain state, you can control that. So they would train him with the you know they had the uh, electrodes on his head so they could tell him what state he was in and he would learn to uh, change that uh, there at the end of the program he was uh, he was raising them by a degree that 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 was a, an amazing accomplishment to him yeah. and um, uh, by that time I was probably uh, uh, it was just it wasn't a hard job uh, but it was uh, difficult. The hours were the, the hours, hours were long. long the hours were long. You were with him, or right? Had to work pretty much when he was awake. Exactly. So, about how many hours a day would you think that would be? Uh, fourteen hours. I'm sure there were yeah, hour about days. fourteen hours. Mm -hmm. You know that was uh, that would uh, you know in in that time, I'm not with him. I mean, I could sit. I guess I could watch TV. I could read. Uh, but then if he needed something, I had to be available. Mm -hmm. um, you, you couldn't, uh, the whole family was great. Uh, the, the wife was appreciative. He knew, uh, she knew that uh, I made his, her husband's life better. So she always, mm -hmm. they were uh, the kids. Of course, the, they, they had two good boys and they, uh, they didn't want to burden them with helping their dad overly. Uh, they had to, uh, you know, when they, when, because the wife wasn't physically capable of moving him. So you did, you did that. Part yeah, I was so. in good shape. Uh, it wasn't as, it wasn't a, a problem at all for me to lift him from the wheelchair to the bed or, you know, to a sitting chair. Um, but eventually it was, uh, I, I got a little taste of, and that, I worked for him for about, uh, Oh, four or five months. They stayed longer because of this program uh, mm -hmm. than they had originally planned. And uh, uh, it, eventually, I, it just wears you down. You know, even yeah. it's not, it's not uh, physically strenuous. It's the hours and the, the emotional toll of seeing somebody deteriorate. The work of caregiving. So that required different skills than logging. And 
Yeah, I mean well, that was sludge. yeah that was sludge. that was that was previous to those jobs here. Okay, that that was while I was traveling. Okay, it was shortly after that. Um, I had let's see when I left there, I went to uh, San Francisco for a couple of weeks, traveled up to uh, Washington for a, a visit there, and uh, near Bremerton, Washington, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Wild berries growing everywhere, and uh, could swim in the ocean. It was uh, it was quite an experience. Uh, but then I had uh, then I came back here, had the uh, uh, great opportunity to to uh, to buy this property, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that's when I started learning how to. And your family was here. Your parents were here. Uh, yes, my dad and my mom were here, and my uh, one of my sisters were, lived in this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only uh, it was only thanks to my dad that I was able to get the uh, the loan on the on this property. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back then they wouldn't you wouldn't loan somebody. Uh, it was twenty one, twenty two. Didn't have a steady job, so. So your dad was a kind of a guarantor in a way. Exactly. Right. Right. For the loan for the property. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, land was cheap back then. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like now. You know, uh, property sold for uh, two or three hundred dollars an acre. Mm-hmm. Now and that, that most people probably would think at two or three thousand an acre that would be cheap. People in the city, I, I'm sure, pay a whole lot more than that for a lot. So, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, back in the '70s, land was was inexpensive. So, here. was it a land, um, and did it have a house on it that you could live on, or it had was an, it just the land? It had an old farmhouse on here that uh, hadn't been lived in for about 20 years. Uh, no, uh, no electricity, uh, no road, basically. Um, what about water? It had a cistern fed off gutters and a pitcher pump in the kitchen. That was uh, <clears throat> the uh, the pump. When I moved here, the pump wasn't functional, and uh, the the house was while it was uh, it was uh, sturdy. It was uh, pretty uh, simple. Four rooms around a uh, chimney. Uh, sawmill lumber. Uh, it was a wooden house. Wooden house. You could, you know, you basically could see through the boards, the sawmill boards. You know, you see through. You could see outside. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, modern by any chance. You know, but. Uh, so how was it heating? I mean, the, so the insulation was limited, and there was no it insulation. Gets cold here. There was no insulation. Uh, there, it had cardboard and uh, and newspaper uh, on the walls to to kind of block the gaps. You know, a lot of the a lot of the original homes in this area were built like that, just sawmill lumber. People, it's amazing how they lived out. You know, back then here, it was very very simple uh, and hard life. Like you know, there was. Uh, there's a cemetery that is uh, p- 
part of this property uh, originally for the family, the Baldwin family uh, grew up here. And uh, when you look at the tombstones, you can kind of get a historical idea of uh, what, uh, what the life was like, how long, how long they'd lived here. So the house was probably um, 60 or 70 years old at that point. It had, uh, it had several generations raised there. Uh, from the tombstones, you can see maybe when uh, a disease came through and uh, several of the children died at uh, around the same time. You know, by reading those tombstones, you can get an idea of, of the, the, the timelines of, of the life here. But nobody had lived there for 20 years when I moved, and um, so I had to uh, rebuild the house, put in a, a water system, and um, that's when I became interested in uh, solar power. I couldn't so afford putting in the water. So, and rebuilding the house. I mean, did you have? Um, were you able to take showers in the house? Was there... <laughs> no. You had running... No, right, okay. No, uh, we had an outhouse. I you built an, an outhouse. I had to build an outhouse. I had to build an outhouse. Uh, uh, I had to... T I took a shower. There was a creek running down one corner of the property. Uh, at that time, originally, that's how I bathed uh, and hauled water from the creek for drinking. Even in the winter? Well, you got to remember there. I was still uh, at that stage. I was still traveling. Mm -hmm. uh, I would okay. I, I would leave when you it would got leave cold. When it got cold. I would <laughs> leave when it got cold. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the progression was uh, several years after that. I was I would work on the house uh, and then uh, and then leave when it got cold. Um, I got the water system uh, fixed and um, a, a very simple power system at that point because I couldn't I couldn't afford to have uh, power run back here. I did, you know it was it was quite a, a burden to uh, pay for the place and uh, the, you know running power back a mile and a quarter off the road was expensive. We are out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. I'd also like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at So True Radio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.
Thursday afternoons from noon until 2. 90.7 FM is the place to be. Twice a month, DJ Charlie presents the World Beat Connection with the hottest Afro-Caribbean sounds in Portland radio land. Reggae, salsa, soca, New Orleans Afro-funk, Haitian compa and rara, and Antillian zouk share the airwaves with African high life. Afrobeat, Congolese sukus, Malian blues, juju, and South African cueto, among the other great styles. Traditional and modern expressions are all included. On alternate weeks, check out Top Rankin' Reggae and Dancehall with Shocks of Sheba show, hosted by Teresa and Michelle. Any week, Thursdays at noon is sure to move ya. Prison Pipeline is a radio program dedicated to educating the public about the Oregon criminal justice system. Topics include incarceration and reentry, addictions and mental health, elections and laws, victims' rights, and criminal justice reform. The program presents a unique understanding of the criminal justice system, addresses the root causes of crime, and challenges the status quo. It seeks to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safer, healthier, and more just society. Prison Pipeline airs on Monday evenings from 6.30 to 7 p.m. on KBOO Portland. Check us out every week. If you miss an episode, you can stream it later. Just go to kboo.fm slash prison pipeline. More info about upcoming shows and events related to the prison community can be found on our Facebook page, Prison Pipeline. Be sure to like us. Join KBOO by December 31st and receive free gifts and prizes from the Give Guide. Just click the donate banner on the KBOO app to keep community radio strong and vibrant in Portland and beyond. This is KBOO Portland. The time is 8.58. Coming up next at 9, it's Press Watch, where host Teresa Mitchell brings you the news you're not supposed to know. At 10, it's Flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. And at 11, it's Book Wave, where National Book Award-winning novelist Hajin discusses his latest book, The Banished Immortal. And at 11.30, hear words and pictures, where host S.W. Concher speaks to Raina Tegmeyer, author and illustrator who has inspired many young readers with her graphic memoirs, Smile and Guts. 
KBOO is an independent, non-commercial community radio station powered by our volunteers and our members. To become a member, go to kboo.fm or use our mobile app and click on Donate. Be sure to tune in to Radio Lost and Found. It's the show that puts the OO in KBOO. Radio Lost and Found is a two hour mediascape of found sounds, forgotten records, outre recordings, and more. Coming to you every second and fourth Thursday from 10 to midnight, right here on KBOO. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K2A2BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and on the web at (laughs) KBOO.FM. This is Press Watch. Good morning. It's 9 o'clock Pacific time. And uh, this is the news you're not supposed to know. Well, here we are at the end of the decade. And uh, I, I for one, would be glad to uh, say goodbye to it, particularly to uh, 2019. And uh, first, as we bid goodbye to the 20-teens, I want to point out that the U.S. economy is built on hype, that it represents an enormous bubble, and that the bubble is going to pop. Central banks' balance sheets are obviously stretched. I want to explain what I mean by that. The Baltic Dry Index, the meter of actual commodities changing hands in the world's shipping lanes, decreased 192 points, or almost 15%, from its high of 2,500 at the beginning of this year, 2019. Historically, the Baltic Exchange Dry Index reached an all-time high of 11,793 in May of 2008. You know what happened that year. So everything we're looking at since then is chump change by comparison. We're at the most, at the beginning of the year, we were only up to less than a quarter of that. And uh, since then, we we have lived in a finance bubble economy. And you've probably heard that before, and you're wondering, 